Hey, queens and our kings. I heard from you guys last week that you were tuning in and you felt a little odd about me saying queens. So I will acknowledge you, all of you kings, because you are welcome in this space. I wanted to give a brief introduction to this episode. I flew to Virginia uh, to Tina's beautiful home and we sat and just in typical Tina and Sharana fashion, our conversations are always a clinic. So this was no different. Our interview went a little long and I wanted to break it down in two episodes just because I thought that everything that we had to say was uh, worthy to be heard. We will not have a these three things at the end of this episode, but we will on part two, just to give you the heads up. Hope you enjoy it. Tina Thompson, Sharana Reeves, these three things. Hi, this is Sharana Reeves, and you are listening to These Three Things. Today, my guest is Tina Thompson. Her accolades are long, so take a seat. Number one overall pick in the first WNBA draft, second leading scorer in WNBA history, 17-year career as a professional, four-time WNBA champion, nine-time WNBA All-Star, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and in 2018, Tina was inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. She is currently the head coach of women's basketball at the University of Virginia. And in addition to all of these accomplishments I just shared, for the last 15 years, Tina has been raising her son, Dylan. Welcome to These Three Things, Tina. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. I'm happy to have you here. So... Uh, super glad that we get a, get a chance to just have this conversation and just talk about so many things. And let's talk about, first of all, how we met and our first time meeting each other. Do you remember where we were? I do. We were in Augusta, Georgia, weren't we? We were. We were. Tell the story. You tell the story and then I'll, I'll jump in there. Well, I just remember, like I do, I mean, often I was very new to the um, kind of basketball-like coaching scene and um Rarely is there a time that I'm not myself. So I was taught as a very young girl that, you know, when you enter a room, you speak to the room. So uh, I happened to be entering the the gymnasium for uh, just work, you know, recruiting and going to find my place to see the kids that we were recruiting at Texas because that's where I was at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I entered the gym, uh, like always, there's a role of coaches also doing the same thing that I came to do. And I just spoke to, I guess, the gym, you know, mm -hmm. um, saying good morning to everyone. And um, I recall very clearly that um, my good morning was received by you and you only. <laughs> uh, and then uh, soon after that, Travis Mays, who um, was my colleague, but um, something that's all too familiar, but uh, you... I guess responding in the proper way is what grabbed my attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, of course, knew you when you came into the room. I mean, obviously, we all knew who you were, and I think it may have been your first year in women's basketball, like from the on the coaching side. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was your first year, and you know, just obviously having watched you played over the years, and you know, 
knew your game and just I was happy to see you. I am a fan of other women. I have to say that. And Ditto. I did the same thing to Nikisha Sales. When I saw Nikisha Sales for the first time, I was like, are you Nikisha Sales? She was <laughs> like, I am. And I just told her how much I loved her game. Because if you love basketball, Absolutely. you respect players when you see Absolutely. them and you know their hustle and what they gave to the game mm -hmm. and just, you know, so I was a fan and I just, you know, I saw you and you came in and you spoke and I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, she's speaking because, you know, you know, in our industry, sometimes you can walk in a room and people don't speak. More times than not. More times than not. And yeah. I knew that would be the case because you're not the first person that's come from the WNBA that's come into women's basketball and comment on how people are just not always the friendliest. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to make you feel welcome. I felt like that you deserve that for what you have given to the game. Like, how dare we not come in and acknowledge a sister who has done major things. So, you know, I just wanted to say hello and I didn't expect anything from it. You know, I didn't expect that we would end up talking or right. like, you know, getting to know each other over the years, but I just wanted you to feel welcome and, and you know, and glad I to see I you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, for me, um, cordial greetings are just a part of being a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, I speak to people in the elevator that I, would not recognize if I saw them twice. But right. I just think that when you enter a space that is obtained by other people, yeah. you speak to the group. It's just how I was raised and what I know to be. So um, your response was welcome then. And, and it did give me like a little smile because it was unexpected based on my previous experiences. But it doesn't change how I go about the things that right. I do because I am who I am. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, I sense that right away because when people didn't speak, you just kept right on going like, <laughs> OK, I did my part. Like I yes. said hello. And that's how you got to be. Just, you know, not even in that environment, just in general. If, like you said, you walk in a room and people don't acknowledge, hey, I, that you, that's a them problem. That's a them problem. Yeah. So born and raised in L.A., Yes. Talk about L.A. because, I mean, just right now in the climate that we're in and the racial divide that's happening in this country, mm -hmm. L.A. has seen its fair share of racial issues and racial tensions. And, you know, what was it like growing up in L.A.? Uh, it was amazing. I um I loved every bit of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much so that it was very difficult for me to leave. Yeah. If not for opportunity, I would probably still, you know, be living in Los Angeles. Like I miss it dearly. But you know, maturity and um just being cultured and experiences has allowed me to kind of move away. Yeah. But I still have a very strong connection. I mean, what I appreciate more so now than then because before it was just the community, it was my friends, all of my family is there. Yeah. The weather, of course, and just, you know, the versatility of just kind of like having opportunity and things to do is what kept me there for yeah. a long period of time. Today, I appreciate um, the diversity. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the very low, um, I guess, obvious judgment, you know? It is um, because of the diversity. I mean, you grow up expecting and accepting things about people just because, yeah. you know, when I went to elementary school, when I went to junior high school, I was in a school with mm -hmm. very diverse, all types of people. So it's something that I knew. Yeah. So it wasn't unfamiliar to um see other people in culture differences and um, just expectations based on, you know, your culture and how you were raised. So there were no prejudices based on that. It was not until I moved outside of California um, was I, I guess, kind of experiencing the things that I read about Yeah. Um, in books and, you know, how people, you know, perform or treat, you know, one another. It wasn't my experience growing up. I purposely took my son, Dylan, back to California to start his formative years in education yeah. simply because of that reason. Yeah. I was concerned with him having a lack of diversity. So because it had such a positive impact on my life, I knew that my son or, you know, if there were more children to become, if I, uh, if I was blessed with that, then they would have the same experiences, yeah. even if it was just, you know, fundamental education. But I wanted them to have a mindset of acceptance. 
Wow. And it's so interesting that you say that because I have to tell you that recently my daughter just told me and she didn't say anything to me about it when she was going through it, but shared it with me after that when we lived in West Virginia, when she started her freshman year in high school, she said she had the lowest self-esteem that she'd ever had about herself because there was very little diversity in West Virginia in in the part in which we lived. And so after her freshman year, I ended up taking the job in Knoxville Mm -hmm. and the diversity just completely changed. And her sophomore year in high school, she saw more people that looked like her. And now, I mean, she tells me just inwardly what that did for her and how she just blossomed. And I love the fact that you realized that early on that Dylan was going to need that. And you and you let him go back to a place where you know, not only was he going to be able to develop socially and the interactions of having diversity, but just what that does for a kid mentally to have that experience. Absolutely. I mean, it's one thing to have, um, to be in an environment where um, you constantly get um, visual affirmation of people that look like you. Right. But it's also the, the fact that the people that don't look like you that are in that environment are not bothered by your presence right. and that they accept absolutely who you are because it is the same exact environment that they've grown up in as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's major. Yeah. It's major. So let's talk a little about basketball because most of our conversation isn't going to be about basketball. <laughs> okay. And that's the part that I'm excited about. But what age did you start playing? I started playing and just kind of finding my way through the game at about nine. Mm -hmm. Nine. Mm -hmm. So when did you know that while playing and developing that you could be really good? At what what age did that click for you that you said, you know, I could be pretty good at this? I had probably just turned 11. I started playing at nine simply because I adored my my older brother. Mm -hmm. And he was a serious athlete. He played football. He played basketball. He played baseball. And he was good at everything. And he had a really cool kind of like group of friends that lived in our neighborhood. And I just wanted to hang out with them, you know, because just the stuff that they talked about and just how they interacted with each other and just responded to each other. It was a very positive Mm -hmm. um, connection with them. So I just wanted to be apart but of course my older brother we're three years apart was like no you know like go and play with the girls (laughs) so I went to my mom and told her that I wanted to play basketball because Mm. I knew that if I told her that then she would make my brother kind of take me along so that I could go with them to my rec center and it worked it totally worked (laughs) but then once I got there I realized that I was really going to have to start trying to play basketball because if not, then my cover would be blown. Right. So um, I I just kind of messed around with it. It wasn't until probably months later that I was really challenged Mm -hmm. that um, some other guys basically told me that I didn't belong. Like this is kind of not what girls do. so I told my brother about it and he wasn't on their side, but it was more like, see, I told you, like, this is what I was oh. trying to protect you from. And that just made me yeah. even madder. Yeah. <laughs> so that challenge um, or just the idea that they thought that this was something that I couldn't do because mm-hmm. I was just competitive by nature. It was our family environment. Yeah. That was kind of the spark or the switch that flipped, like, I will show you. Yeah. And from that moment on, it's all I did every day, all day, after school, until it was time for me to come home. It is what I did. Um, so by the age of 11, like the other little boys that did not match or have the same dedication of me, I was a problem for them. <laughs> and then... I love it. I love it. And then, you know, it... Mind, I'm literally the only girl like at my rec center. Um, the older guys started, you know, taking notice. And there was such um, a sense of community mm-hmm. anyway. Everyone knew each other. You know, we would kind of end up walking to the park together like every single day because every kid in our neighborhood was walking at some point. But we eventually were on the same route. So yeah. we would come together. So um a group of two or three became maybe like 10 or 11 by the time, you know, we reached the park. Um, So they started taking notice and just giving me, you know, pointers and tips. 
and um, realized that I was very receptive and learning really quickly. And at that point, at 11, when I knew, Mm -hmm. like, I'm getting good at this, like, that was it. I knew that it was something that I wanted to do until I couldn't do it anymore. So were you your height that you currently are now then? Were you a tall girl? Yeah, I was tall, but I I wasn't this tall. I was probably about... um, maybe 10 or 11, I was probably about five, seven. Okay. Yeah. So, um, when I was in, uh, probably around the sixth grade is when I got around like five, nine, yeah. five, 10 in between like the summer, uh, being in elementary school and going to junior high school, I got to about five, 10. So I grew about another two inches there. And then I grew again about another two inches when I was in high school. So did that affect your game at all? Just like the height or was it just a gradual? So you always could adjust just as you were growing? Um, No, it didn't affect me at all because I was actually playing with boys. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't considered like a quote unquote post player because I was tall and I was skinny, but I wasn't tall in comparison to them. Yeah. So more times than not, I played outside. So that's where, you know, played on the wing. That's where I developed shooting. I wasn't physically strong enough to kind of battle with them, but like I could shoot the lights out. So all I did was just hang around a three point line or somewhere in the vicinity of it and just shoot, shoot, shoot all the time. And, um, not until I got to high school is when I had to figure out being a post player because it wasn't familiar to me. I had never like played inside, but going to high school, I was then tall, you know, in comparison to playing with the girls that I was playing against. And it was the first, you know, real time that I no longer played on teams with boys. Yeah. So even in, uh, so you were just beasting, you were Um, beasting pretty much the girls. I, I mean, I was pretty good. Yeah, Yeah. you can just say. I mean, because if you think about it, and I'm sure you've thought about it, the fact that you were playing with the boys and you were smaller than them made you develop guard skills Mm. for someone who's going to be 6'2". You're 6'2", right? I'm about almost 6'2". Yeah, I mean, think about that. Like, when you had those skills, that was an anomaly back then, Tina, to have someone at your height have those type of guard skills. Now that's the commonplace Yes, to be 6'2", and, you know, as a girl, six, three, even six, four and have guard skills. Yes. So like that was such a setup for you. It was such a it setup. Was. It was. Well, and, and not knowing. I mean, there were so, so many things that I didn't know about the process, like going into high school. I played basketball because it absolutely became one of my loves. Yeah. Like, I didn't have any expectation about it entering or going to high school. I didn't even know that I could receive a scholarship. Yeah. I knew that I was going to college. Like, in my mind, I was going to Harvard. I was figuring out how yeah. I was going to do that. Like, basketball was a part of the equation, but I wasn't doing it because I knew I could receive a scholarship like it wasn't even on my radar just love yeah and then I I realized that it was possible once I got to high school and it wasn't even when I first got there Mm -hmm. Um, I had played my entire uh, 10th grade season and not until the end of it my uh, head coach at the time Frank Scott, he brought out these boxes Mm -hmm. and in these boxes, they had like all this mail. So I was like, what is that? And he's like, this is yours. (laughs) And I went from who, you know, I'm thinking like it's fan mail or something like that. And I'm like, this is crazy. So he's like, no, like all those people in that box want to offer you an athletic scholarship. And I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) So literally I take them home and I'm like, mom, like, guess what coach Scott told me today? Did you open them all? Did you go through them? I absolutely did not. I went to every (laughs) single one of them (laughs) looking for a letter from Harvard and there wasn't one. So there was a moment of kind of like devastation. And then, um, I can't remember who told me, I think, um, it was, um, Daniel, he was one of the guys like at the park. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually called him White Dan, which oh. is crazy because okay. he was one of the really cool <laughs> white guys at our park and he could shoot the lights out. So he was actually one of my mentors. Um, he said, I, I, don't, I don't think that Harvard, you know, like gives scholarships because, you know, I'm sharing this new experience, you know, with my guys or whatever. And I, I didn't see him. So I was a little disappointed to not have a letter from them. But once I found out, that um, they didn't offer scholarships, I was kind of relieved. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I didn't open a letter that was not on the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. 
And here you are in Virginia. And here I am <laughs> in Virginia. <laughs> okay, so stellar high school career. You choose USC. Yes. Why? I chose USC um, specifically because of Marianne Stanley and Barbara Thaxton. Okay. Um, they were, uh, Marianne Stanley was the head coach and uh, Barbara Thaxton was the associate. Um, also because of the education. Right. I knew that um, I was for sure going to use um, my athletic talents to get a great education. So uh, basketball wasn't the only factor. Yeah, It was the education. And yeah. USC at the time was one of the places to absolutely be. Absolutely. And, and still is. It still is. Mm -hmm. And it was 25 minutes from where I grew up so my family and friends could see me. It actually wasn't my first choice. Um, after not, you know, I guess the small disappointment of Harvard, I was going to go to Stanford. Wow. Um, again, mm -hmm. for, you know, academic Academics. reasons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I wanted to, uh, ultimately my career choice, I wanted to be a judge. Mm. So I wanted to get a great undergraduate degree, um, then go to law school and, you know, prepare, um, for, you know, my career path. So my foundation, I wanted to be really, really strong. Um, USC was simply because of Mary and Stanley and Barbara Thaxton. Yeah. Yes. Relationship. Relationship. Yeah. Yeah. This is Sharana Reeves. I'm with Tina Thompson. This is These Three Things. We'll be right back. If you want to find more information about this episode and my guest, go to www.these3-things.com. Go to our podcast page and click on this episode. So, Tina, you graduate from high school, have a stellar career, mm -hmm. go to USC, another stellar career, and then what happens? Well, uh, after USC, well, I, actually, I was still at USC, but at the end of the year, um, just before graduation, I had started taking a Kaplan class. Mm -hmm. I was studying to take the LSAT. Um, my career goal was to be a judge. So um, you uh, have to go to law school before that. So um, I'm studying to just prepare to take the test and then um, hopefully get a, a good enough score to enter the law school of choice. At that time, it was USC mm -hmm. um, just because that was um, uh, my home school and I'd had just a great time there in undergraduate. And I mean, I didn't have any plans of leaving California. So it yeah. was the right choice for me at the time. Um, during one of those classes, I received a call, which all of my family and friends, everyone who knows me at that time of day, that I'm in my Kaplan class, so no one's gonna call. After the call happened a couple of times, I actually shut off my phone because complete embarrassment at this point. Right. Um, and uh, after class, I looked at my phone to just make sure everything was okay, but also listen to whoever this was, whomever uh, was calling me. And the message was from Renee Brown. Renee Brown at the time was the second in command in the WNBA. And she was um, inviting me to play in the WNBA. Absolute shock. Yeah. You know, I rush home. I call my, my older brother and then my mom just mm -hmm. to kind of get their thoughts about it and yeah. share the news. And the first question that my mom asked was, um, you know, did I call her back and what did she say? And I responded, no, I hadn't called her back yet. And she was kind of wondering, like, why not? I'm like, I wanted to talk to you guys yeah. first and get your thoughts and opinions about it. But I did eventually call Renee back. Yeah. So let's fast forward a little bit. First pick in the WNBA draft, yeah. the first ever. Like, just think about that. Like, do you ever, like, I'm sure you're you, so you don't really give that a lot of credit. But the number one of the first. Yeah. Did, in I, that moment, did you realize how big that was, Tina, how historical, you know, just that you would always be the first pick in the WNBA draft? I didn't. And I have moments where I think about it now, but it's only when other people talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's you. You're Otherwise, just, yeah. yeah, I don't really. Um, it's a true characteristic of my personality. I rarely kind of see myself like other people do yeah. because I just, you know, am. Mm -hmm. Like I am from a very real family, like yeah. down the earth that, you know, you are who you are, who you were raised, who we know you to be when yeah. you go home. And there are not very many, you know, differences in that. I still have to cook and clean and do all those kind of things. So uh, there's a very um, 
I guess, real, real experience and reality to just kind of like how I live my life. So, you know, those things more times than not only come up when someone else is speaking of them. Brings it up. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to Houston. I did. You leave L.A. I did. You have to leave L.A. Uh, but Houston was great. I mean, the big three. You're it part was. of the big three. TV commercials. Built a dynasty. Yeah. Uh, that we all know and remember, you know, in the early WNBA years. Mm-hmm. And so let's transition a little bit to family, Tina. Yeah. So where were you in your career when you found out that you, that you were going to be a mom? Um, I believe I was in... Had you guys year won championships? Nine, you, year so eight, you had won championships. Like yeah. Okay. yeah, I had won all of my championships. My son Dylan is 15. He was born in 2005. So, um, yeah, I believe it was year nine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did the WNBA receive when you said, hey, I'm going to take a break and have a son or a child? Well, I didn't actually take a break. Now, mind you, uh, I mean, when my head coach at the time, Van Chancellor, found out or I told him, I mean, I thought that he was going to literally have a heart attack. Um, and then I had to say, like, buddy, yeah. <laughs> this is this is bigger than basketball. Like, you literally have to relax. And I'll give you a call back because I'm just not comfortable with how you're, like, receiving this. Yeah. Because for me, the first thing that you should have said was congratulations. Right. And not what are you going to do? Because in that moment, it wasn't about you. Yeah. Um, but I didn't actually take a year off. Like, I played in that season. So um, after I had my son Dylan in May, I was playing by July. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't miss a step. Uh, I was a little chunky and not <laughs> as quick, but <laughs> still effective. <laughs> still effective. Okay, so it, you know, through the pregnancy process, you know, you obviously played through some of it, and then the season's over. You have Dylan you're back playing again. Was there ever a time after you'd had Dylan that you're thinking, am I going to be able to do this? Or was there never a doubt that I'm going to do this? Was there any second guessing? It was in um, the very beginning. So most people don't know this, but I didn't know that I was pregnant until I was a little over five months. Okay. So my body performed normally every month um, during my pregnancy with Dylan until, um, after my sixth month that um, I truly, my body functioned, you know, and what we traditionally know is just kind of being pregnant. I had played in the first half of the WNBA season. I played in the Olympics Mm -hmm. um, in Greece, not knowing at all that I was with child, which is just kind of crazy. So um, I was just kind of not feeling well. And I just went to the doctor, not at all thinking that I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when I was told. So I was in complete and utter shock. So there was a fear, you know, in that moment because so much time had passed. Um, I, you know, I didn't notice. I mean, Dylan was just so calm. You know, Mm -hmm. he just really took care of me. I didn't, hadn't gained a lot of weight. Like I was over five months and, um, I didn't gain more than like six or seven pounds, you know? So I was still wearing my own clothes, like up until, you know, the eighth month, you know, I was still wearing my own jeans and things like that. So it was a very unique, you know, experience. And because of the time when I found out, I didn't question the fear was more um, about Dylan, you yeah. know, and his health and right. his safety. And um, once, you know, that was clear and obvious, I started thinking about the other things, but um, not at all worrying about um, whether I would still do it, but could I still do it and it not improperly um, affect Dylan or just had have any negative effects like on him and right. just kind of his life. And then, you know, once I figured it out, it's just kind of what we did. So when you found out during the Olympics, did you tell anybody or did you keep it to yourself? You just I didn't find out during the Olympics. The Olympics were over. It was over. Okay. I finished the rest ah, of that I WNBA season. Okay. So we're like now in our off season. So it's probably like November or oh, something okay. like that. And then that's when I wasn't, I wasn't feeling um, good. 
And um, it was simply because Dylan had shifted and yeah. he had just kind of uh, was sitting like just um, he, it had irritated like the lining in my stomach or something like yeah. that, a very small thing. And I went to the doctor because I had a stomach stomach ache. I thought that I had like it was appendicitis or something like that. And I then find out that I was um, having a son. Having a son. Yeah. Sons are awesome. Sons are awesome. Shout out to Kendon, <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> sons um okay so let's talk about dylan's dad his father how did you guys meet uh we met in um houston texas okay Mm -hmm. and just over the years like what what are what is the status of you guys now like um we don't speak um at all you know not at all at any but it's okay with you know for me it's okay my concern the entire time was um dylan I cannot have a relationship or a friendship with anyone that doesn't father their children, whether the children are mine or they're someone else's. There is um, a lack of just respect, you know, that I could have for someone. You can't have a true and honest relationship with me if you don't care for your children. So has his involvement, because you say that you guys don't speak, has his involvement been inconsistent? Have there been times where he's tried to step in and not be consistent and then not around? Or has it just pretty much just been not consistent? Not, we don't we don't communicate. We don't. He doesn't. Uh, well, maybe um, there was small communication early. Um, since Dylan was the age of three, I've been a single parent. Okay. I understand. I was married for 13 years, and when I got divorced, um, I think as some men do, they take it hard, and uh, my ex-husband disappeared for a while, and that was tough. It was tough, and I understand it, and that's the criteria for me, you know, now as a divorced woman who raised uh, two kids in this profession, in the Mm -hmm. coaching world, uh, that's a criteria for me. If you are a father... I must know that you take care of the kids that you currently have for me to even take you seriously to date you. So I totally, totally agree with that. So let's transition a little bit to what has been with the career that you've had, with the longevity that you were in the WNBA, what has been the hardest part about being a single parent? Uh, Just time. I just feel like there's uh, never enough time. Um, the thing that I worry about the most is, you know, Dylan's mental health and not just his physical health. Um, it was a concern that, you know, I had throughout the process. So uh, there wasn't a moment or time that I didn't take my son with me wherever right. it was, um, whether it be Russia or Romania or Italy or China, there was not a moment that he did not come along, whatever the expense or um, it took for me to allow that to happen. Um, he was going to be there. He had one parent and um, I would never want him to feel like he was parentless. So um, the love, the attention, all those things, um, I wanted him to have and have no doubt at all that he was love or care for or the fact that he was a priority because he was my number one priority. Yeah, yeah. And I think just initially when I was at West Virginia and you were at Texas at the time, I think part of the reason why I feel like that we bonded and would have these conversations to one o'clock in the morning, right? (laughs) The day before a game, the (laughs) night before a game and just talk was our, a lot of our lives in that way was similar because I was raising my, my son and my daughter Mm -hmm. and, and you were raising Dylan and, you know, just knowing the travel that we do as coaches Mm -hmm. and, uh, the time that we're away from home, like as a professional, you could take Dylan with you. Yes. Sometimes now, you know, you're a head coach now, so you have that option. But as an assistant coach and Dylan's older now, so he's in school, he can't always, you know, miss school to travel or to be with you. Do you and Dylan have conversations about your travel, about the time that you're away and the things that you miss? What do you guys talk about as far as that's concerned? Well, see, what I did was that I homeschooled Dylan myself Okay. until he could, um, until he no longer wanted to travel. So when he decided, and that was 
when we were at Texas. So most recently in the seventh grade here in Virginia is when Dylan went back to public school. So from the second grade um, until the seventh grade, I homeschooled him myself yeah and um it was easy because we would just pack another bag and all of his schoolwork his computer and everything you know was in there and you know we'd have wi-fi in the hotel or whatever country we were in and um he would be able to do his homework and his schoolwork then. So it was how we were able to make it work. Mm -hmm. But then he got to an age where, although he still enjoyed coming to the games and supporting, supporting me, he didn't want to be on the road traveling anymore. And, um, when, you know, his interests and what he wanted to do changed is, uh, when I changed and just adjusted. Yeah. So, Went to school publicly. Mm-hmm. How was that for him? Um, initially, uh, it was, he just, he kind of had to ju- adjust to the structure. It was actually, you know, funny that, um, you know, he would come home and, you know, we, I am a cool mom, but I am a strict mom. Mm-hmm. So there is no bending on certain things and education is not one of them. Right. So he would come home and before he could would do his, you know, leisurely things or the things that entertained him, he would have to do his schoolwork first. So I would see him every day doing his schoolwork uh, time. And, you know, at times I would check it. I know that he was a bright kid and intelligent because I schooled him, you yeah. know, for about five years. So he was really, really, really smart. So um, it got to a point, even when we were like homeschooling, that I didn't even have to like check because he was on his own, you know, routine. Um, I started getting emails from his um, homeroom teacher first, and then some of the teachers in his class Mm -hmm. about Dylan not turning in his homework. Well, in homeschool, you can complete the hours. He could do seven assignments in one day or just do one and stay like on schedule. So, you know, I called him down and I'm like, bud, you know, I have all these emails from your teacher about you not, turning in your schoolwork Mm -hmm. um I see you doing your schoolwork every single day and he said oh yeah I have it it's in my backpack and I go why is it in your backpack didn't it have a due date you were supposed Mm -hmm. to turn it in and he goes oh yeah they said that they wanted it by Wednesday but I didn't know that that was a hard Wednesday Ah. And I went, what? (laughs) I'm like, no, when it is completed and it is due, you have to turn it in. You can't just decide. So it was more than anything, a mental adjustment, Adjustment. but um, he scored well, you know, he's in advanced placement classes and, you know, he's doing well, but it was more the routine of just socially and uh, a structure adjustment for him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just met Dylan today. He has the most beautiful baby face, but he's six, five. Yeah. He's six, five, almost 15, six, six now. Yeah. 15. Six, five. Okay. So you know that your son is a baby mm-hmm. still. 15 is still a baby. It's still Absolutely. so young. But having a son myself, we both know that the world doesn't look at our black sons, uh, especially when they're as big. My son is six, eight. So. Mm-hmm. Dylan's probably headed that direction more than likely. Um, Society doesn't look at our sons, even though they're young, as kids. They Mm -hmm. see them as men. So have you had to have the talk with Dylan, the police talk, and um, just to be aware and to pay attention and to be mindful when he's around police? Have you had to have that talk with him Um, yet? Dylan and I have been having conversations like that for a very long time. I mean, even when he was younger, just about his presentation, because um, fortunately and unfortunately, I've been in those uh, circumstances, in those rooms where people will say to me, you speak so well, or you carry yourself so well, right. you're put together so well. Is that such and such like a brand or something like that? Because they are um, surprised that I'm educated. They're surprised that I speak a certain way. They're surprised that I know how to carry myself and um, maintain and actually function 
in a space that um, for them, I guess, is normal. Uh, for me, it is also very num- normal. So having those examples and those experiences, I've shared them with my son for as long as he could hop comprehend yeah. the fact that um, he was that he's a boy and he's a black boy. It's even more important. So, you know, people, um, when they compliment me about my son, um, I'm thankful. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I'm not surprised because he was raised that way. Right. Um, I receive it differently depending on who's saying it and how you say it. Right. And there's a difference in the genuineness and in, in how you say it. Um, and um, those who expect it because they know me and they know how I am. So yes, we have conversation about having your headphones on and he is a big, happy kid, you know, um, you know, he's a dancer. He likes to dance. Um, I paint the picture of him out when we're in the neighborhood and Mm -hmm. we're walking and he's doing these dances and he has his headphones on. And although that is very familiar to people who look like him, And they would probably root him on or smile or laugh, give him the thumbs up, honk the horn or, you know, roll down the window and holler at him. That is not the perception for everyone else. Right. So it is an act, although you're just being a fun, loving little kid, because although he is intelligent and he is mature, he is still very much 15. A kid. Yes. Yeah. Um, And let me just let me ask you this. So he's 15. Yeah. Next year he'll be 16. Mm -hmm. Driving time. Yes. Do you, have you, have you considered that yet? Have you already started to have the thoughts about, okay, now he's going to be driving and the fear. Do you, and I'm just going to ask you outright, do you fear for Dylan's life? Do you have that fear? I fear for Dylan every time he goes out and he is not with me. Unfortunate, but truth. Yes. So the idea of him driving, the idea of the type of car that he will drive um, based on the blessings that I've received, it will be a cause of conversation or concern for other people. And it shouldn't be, but it is our reality. So it's something that I think about. I think about what is appropriate and what is too much um, based on other people's perception. It angers me, Mm. but I also know that it's very much the reality and it's something that we have to um, take into account. So it is very much something that we talk about. Yeah, and it's it's an angering conversation to have uh, and it doesn't get any better. My son is 21 now, Tina, and... Uh, has been driving for a few years now, and I still worry about him. Away at college, I still worry about him. And his dad is a detective. His dad is a detective. His dad is in law enforcement, and I still worry about him because with all of the the love and the nurturing and everything that you've put in Dylan, I've put in my son too. Mm -hmm. But as we both know, society doesn't always get to know that part before the judgment and the assessment of our sons is made. And um, I worry about Kendon because he has, as you just said, Kendon is my son. I worry about mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, he is a big guy, soft-hearted, yep. kind guy. But when the world sees this big six, eight guy with dreads walking around, they don't know that he's the sweetest guy you will yeah. ever meet. Educated. Yeah, educated, kind, spirited, mm-hmm. uh, family-loving uh, kid, so it can be frustrating. I know that it's frustrating for a lot of black moms out here that we have to think about it every day, and it's it's something that doesn't go away. No, it doesn't go away. I don't think that it ever will, unless a miracle happens and the world just changes, does a complete one eighty, and um, people are aware of the unkind things that they do and they say, whether it's uh, in person, via uh, social media and all those networks, but just the reality of how you act and the things you say and how it can affect the people around you. I'm mindful of that. And I've been that way, you know, my entire life. 
And I know that most of it has to do with the color of my skin, but um, because it was necessary in yeah. order for me to be able to function and also be successful, but it should be the thought process and just the fundamental process of just being a human being. A human being. Yeah. Did you guys talk about um, George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery? Did you uh, and he talk about that? Yeah, we, we talk about it all the time. You know, he uh, will even, you know, send me different things. We've had um, conversation about it uh, even more so now mm -hmm. based on the state of our, our world and just the social unrest that's going on. Um, the fact that, um, you know, people respond the way they do. And even with all the information that is flowing around right now and the undeniable access that we have people really say still say really cruel and mean things yes. I mean I post what I want on my social media because it is mine right. as long as it is not offensive right. or degrading to other people I post things that speak to my person. It might not necessarily be something that I directly experienced, but if it speaks to my person and my thought process, I'll post it unapologetically. The response of people, sometimes based on just ignorance and not knowing, it is disheartening. So I have to teach my son simply that, yes. that it's not even your intentions or your purpose that is the important part of it. It is how other people will perceive that act because their lack of education or experience. And that is unfortunate. That is, uh, in my opinion, uh, a very black thing that shouldn't be. It's inhumane. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's inhumane. And, you know, when we talk about just the race relations in this country right now and you know, obviously you work at a university and institution. Uh, Charlottesville has had its share of issues with race mm -hmm. uh, over the years. Do you feel because of the role that you play as, as the head coach at Virginia, as a black woman, as, you know, a former WNBA player, are you at a, are, do you feel like it's your place to educate and, I, and this is a podcast for women of color, so I want to be very direct about what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's your place to educate white women on black women? Uh, absolutely not. I am not an expert on race, race relations. Right. What I know about the history of our country uh, and the things that um, have happened and experienced are based on a lot, 85% of it what I've read in the book and also conversations I've had with my grandmother. You have the same access that I do. You have the same opportunity to be educated. Um, I don't mind having conversation, but uh, I don't believe that it is my responsibility. If you want to know, if you truly want to know, if you care how these things affect me, you will take it upon yourself to have these conversations with me to get to know my person. Absolutely. And wouldn't you say it's fair if we're talking about our relationships with white women? We desire to have relationships with all people, black and women yeah. as, as a whole. I feel like for us, we're open to everybody, yes. every nationality, every culture every sexuality group we're we're open to that we're forgiving we're a very forgiving group yes but do you find that it's not often reciprocated like we will come to your events if, if you're a white friend of mine I'll come to your events I'll come to your house and and have dinner with you if you invite me mm -hmm. but do you find that often it's not reciprocated back there's not that extension to say hey you know uh, come to my family event or the reach back to build the relationship as well? Um, I, it, unfortunately, it is where in my life I've met my non-black friends. My non-black friends that grew up in the same environment that I grew up in California yeah. are a lot different than my... Um, non-black friends that I've met post 
you know, being uh, and moving outside of Los Angeles. Not all, but some, you yeah. know, a good number. I would say the majority. Don't get me wrong. I have some great relationships in my life with people of every color, culture, shade that I adore and I protect. Um, those relationships are few and far between, but um, they are great relationships nonetheless. There is, I don't know, a discomfort or um, a lack of want, right? you know, to have those relationships. But I don't believe that it is my responsibility to make people like me, right? get to know me, um, care for or want to have an understanding of my life process. I don't expect people to approach things the way I would. How you approach things don't have an effect on how I do. If that is how you decide to act and perform, that is your prerogative. It doesn't mean that you're going to consistently get the same amount of love and respect back. That is something that you have to decide. But how I greet people, how I treat people is not gonna be a reflection of someone else. It is solely a reflection of how I was raised, my life experiences, and also what I would like to receive back. Well said. Okay, so Tina, as the head coach of the University of Virginia, you spent how many years? Four years as an assistant coach at Texas. Is that three. correct? Three. Three years. Wow. Three years as an assistant coach at Texas. Um, you get the head coaching job at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about us sisters, black women. Hey, I think that's a great place for us to stop on this episode. Be sure to join us next week for part two. The conversation gets deeper with Tina Thompson and these three things. If you like what you've been hearing today, I encourage you to go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a review and tell me what you loved about this episode. And while you're there, click the subscribe button.